Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for August 8th, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to discuss the latest film and TV news, and in our feature presentation, you can hear our interview with Christopher Robin director Mark Forster. This is Slash Film senior writer Ben Pearson, and joining me today are weekend editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer Waitran Bowie. Hey, everyone. So right before we started recording this episode, some news broke about Disney and James Gunn. HT, you wrote it up for the site. What do we know? Yes. So according to a report from The Hollywood Reporter, uh, Disney is still intending to use James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 script, which he had been working on before he was abruptly fired at the end of July. Uh, And this is somewhat a surprise and somewhat not a surprise because it's been nearly a month since his firing and Disney has still not announced a replacement to direct and write the third Guardians of the Galaxy film, which is strange because you would think that they'd intend to keep on going one of their most immensely popular series in Marvel, but uh, this is apparently ha- the route the route they're going. And it's kind of um, a cap on this whole mess that has uh, happened in the fallout of James Gunn's uh, firing, in which people have kind of giving an outpouring of support for him because of the sort of controversial reason that he has been fired. And um, apparently, it's more than just nice words that he's receiving. He's apparently receiving concrete movie offers as well, including from major studios like Warner Brothers, which has poached filmmakers from Marvel before to work on their sort of struggling DC universe. So this is kind of uh, all uh, resulted in maybe Disney stuck on what they're trying to do with James Gunn as he's negotiating his exit from the studio, which actually may uh, incur a payout of seven to ten million dollars for Gunn if he wants to leave the the studio. Um, And if not, then he might just move over to Warner Brothers. So that's basically the update now uh, that we have with the James Gunn situation. Okay, so this is um, Brad, I know you have a lot of thoughts about this. Tell me tell me what you're thinking here. Yeah, I mean, this is just getting ridiculous. Now, Disney needs to, like, hurry up and figure out what they're doing and make a decision and let everybody know whether they're going to stick to their guns, no pun intended, uh, and keep James Gunn fired or rehire them. Because all the speculation 
is maddening. You know, there have been uh, rumors going around that James Gunn's script wasn't going to be used, and there have been rumors that, that it sounds like people on the inside don't think he'll get rehired. Now, if studios elsewhere are willing to work with James Gunn, I think that just what should prove to Disney that this is something that needs to be like blown over and not even worry about it because this was something that was dealt with already five to six years ago. He apologized. Everyone knew that this was something that it was in, in his past and it was accepted and everyone was willing to move on and give him a chance. And so now we're at this point where we're dealing with it because of all the bullshit that was spurred up by, you know, just vindictive people. And like I said, you know, if, if the rest of Hollywood is willing to work with James Gunn, then Disney should reconsider and, you know, swallow their pride and be like, look, we made a mistake. Uh, welcome James Gunn back and, you know, let him direct Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Otherwise, there's no reason to make it. I don't want to see anybody else direct it. And, you know, it's, it's just it sets a bad precedent. And I, I hope that Disney is, you know, doing some kind of work behind the scenes, uh, whether it's focus group testing or polls to figure out if it's something that the general public will actually be mad about. I would be willing to wager that most of the audience going to see Guardians of the Galaxy doesn't even have an idea that this is going on. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just I, I want them to figure this out so that it's not, you know, in this weird state of limbo anymore. Yeah, it's interesting that they said that they're going to, th that they theoretically could still use the Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 script that he wrote. Because I think the language in his initial firing was very serious. They were like, we have severed all business ties with james gunn and that seems like even you know of course i am right there with you brad and i want him to be reinstated but i sort of feel like if they're severing ties then they shouldn't use his script because well <laughs> you know what i, I mean like, well they still could i mean technically they still could and their statement would still be accurate because i'm sure he's already been paid for that script and so like that's their script to do what they want to do with. Well, so, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm certainly yeah. not arguing that, like, he owns the rights to it or anything, but I, I just think, um, you know, for for them to uh, to be so short-sighted like this, it's so crazy. And I, I wonder if, like you guys were talking about, you know, all these other studios, if they're uh, showing all of this interest, if Disney is sort of going to get, um, you know, like the equivalent of getting jealous, basically, like, like in a relationship, you know, like somebody's hanging out with, uh, with some other, <laughs> other person, and your ex is looking back and being like, oh wow, actually, maybe I, I let something go here that I shouldn't have. So I, I wonder if, if all, especially Warner Brothers and, and DC, we don't know specifically that that. Uh, we know that Warner Brothers is interested in Gunn, but we don't know exactly what for. You know, that's sort of us drawing a line and, and, and speculating that maybe he could end up directing something for the DC uh, subsidiary over there. But um, but I, I wonder, I really wonder if, if this could be the final thing that ultimately convinces Disney that, hey, if all these other places are interested in working with him, maybe we should just hire him back and, and uh, realize and admit our mistake that that we you know gave in to this <laughs> this far right uh, organization that was operating in bad faith from the very beginning. So I don't know. Yeah. It, it's an interesting thing. Um, Aisha, do you have any any final thoughts on this to uh, to wrap this up? Yeah, I think if they keep going, if Disney keeps going at the um, on the path that it is now, but with using James Gunn's script and not rehiring back to direct the film, it's kind of a sort of spineless way out for them in terms of just like they basically fired him to keep the integrity of the company, but they're kind of going behind his back by using this script that he intended to direct in the first place and to Shepard, and now it seems just, it's just, it's icky. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess one last thing I'll say is that 
Um, you know, James Gunn has always been the heart and soul of the Guardians franchise. And if for some reason this whole thing plays out where they don't end up hiring him back, uh, which is it's very possible that that that's what happens and they do end up using his script, at least uh, fans of the Guardians franchise uh, will know that that voice will be retained, even though the direction will be different. I, I feel like the script is is so key for those movies and, and the understanding of those characters is so tied, you know, inextricably linked with James Gunn and his understanding of those characters. So um, I guess this is, you know, if this ends up panning out in, uh, I guess there are a couple different ways this could end up panning out, even if he's not uh, the director of this movie when all is said and done. But hopefully if they use his script, um, we'll at least get to feel his presence in the movie in some way. Um so let's move on to uh, another big news item that broke this morning, and that is that the Oscars are adding a new film category to their uh, awards. Brad, what's going on here? Yeah, so there was a, a message sent out to Academy members today by the board after they recently met and figured out some official things behind the scenes, uh, including the re-election of John Bailey as president of the Academy for another year. Uh, but along with that, they announced a few things that they had decided uh, during the recent board gathering, and it means that there are some changes on the way for the Oscars telecast that will be coming early next year. Um, one of the first things that they announced is that they're going to try to strictly limit the Oscars telecast to three hours. Um, they know that the show constantly runs over. It's usually anywhere between three and four hours. Sometimes it's even gone longer. And they want to try and make sure that it's not a daunting task for people to watch it. It's a hope to improve ratings. And the way that they're doing that is they're going to be uh, cutting out airing some certain awards being presented during the ceremony. So they haven't said which ones, but some select categories will still be given out live at the Dolby Theater on the night of the telecast. And then they will have uh, the moments, the winning moments, basically edited and shown sometime later in the broadcast as like a very quick highlight uh sometime during the show but we don't know so, what those categories are going to be yet right no yeah they haven't said which categories if i were a betting man i would say it would be one of the, something in the technical side or maybe even the the entire short film category altogether animated and live action uh since that's something that a lot of general audiences aren't really familiar with anyway mm -hmm. um but honestly it's it's, it's really frustrating because obviously it's all an effort to boost ratings and get more people to watch but it also gives the shaft to a lot of people who where this is the spotlight that they get and people get to see, you know, the they get recognized and people get to see this on happen on live television and millions of people see, you know, these up and coming filmmakers and uh, they're celebrating their craft. And mm -hmm. so I imagine whoever, well, whichever category are the ones that are announced to be uh, cut from the actual telecast. I'm sure that the people involved with the, uh, those categories are going to raise somehow once that decision is made. There's so much bloat to cut during the Oscars telecast. Like, I don't know why you have to start with just getting rid of the award, which is the entire point of the night anyway. <laughs> right, right. Um, but they're, they're introducing a different thing as well? Yeah, so they're introducing a new category, and uh, it doesn't have an official name yet, but they said that it will be recognizing, uh, quote-unquote, uh, outstanding achievement in popular film. However, uh, they haven't given uh, any eligibility eligibility requirements or details about the award, and they're supposed to release them at some point down the road. Um, based on the wording, obviously this is something that is meant to get more attention to the awards from general audiences who may not be familiar with the usual art house and indie films that are constantly recognized by the Academy. 
But at the same time, one has to wonder exactly what the point of this award is beyond that, because how are they going to determine what is a quote-unquote popular film? And is this award going to be determined by, you know, the audience? Will it be kind of like a People's Choice Award where they choose which movie uh, they think should be honored with an Oscar that year? Um, what it really seems like, though, is it seems like this sort of backup Oscar that they're going to give to movies that aren't quite uh, Academy caliber enough to get a Best Picture nomination. And it feels like another reactionary move to try and appease audiences who were upset that The Dark Knight didn't get a Best Picture nomination. And after that happened, we saw that the Academy decided to change their rules to allow anywhere between five and ten nominees so that a movie like The Dark Knight had a chance at getting nominated. Um, unfortunately, that should not often has that been the case. It's just allowed you know more art house and indie movies to make it into that category, with the exception of some movies like uh, you know Mad Max, Fury Road, um, and and whatnot being considered for that. Uh, Avatar as well, you could probably say is one of them. Um, but really, the, this just seems like a, a case where they're trying to pander to audiences, get more people to watch. But this Oscar, if anything, is going to be more insulting to those movies because it's going to be like. Uh, yeah, sorry, you weren't good enough for the regular one, but here's, you know, this this sec- sloppy seconds Oscar. Yeah, you- it really yeah, it really feels like a consolation prize. Go ahead, HG. I'm on the same board as you, Brad, because it feels like this is a move to try to reframe the Oscars as more, like, populist, but I feel like it makes them feel more elitist because it's a chance for them to kind of uh, shut out popular good films like Black Panther, for example, which is getting lots of Oscar buzz this year, but not a lot of people are expecting get to get a Best Picture nomination because it's a genre film and those movies generally get shut out a lot. And it just feels like it's, yeah, not, it's basically telling them that they're not worthy of being a Best Picture nomination or being part of like the big, the top five. And uh, yeah, it's, I, I, I don't think this is a very popular move and I don't think it's a good idea on the part of the Oscars just because it's, there's just so much backlash that they can immediately get from whatever they choose for this nomination. And I do want to say, if they wanted to reward popular films, so-called, um, they could re- create a category for things like stunt work, which has been a really pivotal part of the Hollywood industry, but has often been overlooked um, and undervalued for so long. Yeah, that's a great point. And and I think the, they have the Taurus Awards, which is like the stunt specific awards, but it's nowhere near on the, you know, like Brad was saying earlier about like those people theoretically being, uh, you know, relegated to a, a tiny little edited moment at the end of the show. It's like, that's your moment to to sort of take the stage in front of your peers and the world and, and have your work be acknowledged. And for stunt people to not be acknowledged still in the year, this is 2018, for God's sake, and they haven't included this category yet. This is so crazy. So I, I, the one sort of hopeful thing I have is I saw that uh, journalist Mark Harris, who writes for Vulture and a bunch of other places, said on Twitter that like the because the ruling here, the, the wording here rather, is so nebulous and the Academy themselves haven't even figured out the definitions of these terms and, and you know what constitutes a popular film, that maybe this is sort of a, um, a test kind of thing they're, where they're just like putting it out there and theoretically they could see the negative response that this is getting and change their minds or maybe try to revamp the whole thing, um, you know, moving forward. So I, I'm not sure. We'll definitely keep you guys posted on, on this as, we, you know, more about it comes out. With regards to the stun thing, I did read something interesting, and I wish I could remember who tweeted it, but they said that they had talked to a stunt person or somebody who, who works in the, in the stunt field, 
And they actually said that a lot of people in the stunt world aren't necessarily uh, um, supportive of an Oscar for stunts because they feel like if they make that an award, then a lot of people are going to die just trying to get it. Oh, wow. I had not even considered that. Uh That's interesting. Um, But I I feel like there's still, you know, like I said, there's the, the Taurus Awards exist. Uh, as is, but maybe, and and I know those like are very um you know well regarded within the stunt community, but I don't know if that's I guess the the um the extra notoriety of winning an Oscar might be uh what what would drive people to that I guess in that in that uh, situation um hmm, that's something to think about I'd never really considered that. Uh, okay, so let's move on to our next item, and that is the next project from director Duncan Jones, who helmed Moon and uh, Source Code and a bunch of other movies. HT, what is uh, Duncan Jones working on next? So Duncan Jones will be directing his first TV series with an adaptation of the spy thriller called Killer Intent. So this is based off of a popular first novel in Tony Kent's series of spy thrillers centered around a an intelligence agent named Joe Dempsey. And so it follows this sort of um, London conspiracy that is sparked by an attempted assassination and uh, a Uh, sort of spirals into this chaos that threatens to overwhelm the British government. And it's based on a book that was published uh, early this year and will now be moving into a TV series uh, produced by uh, Duncan Jones indie studio, Liberty Films. Uh, So yeah, this is his first TV project that he's ever done. Duncan Jones, uh, as you know, is known Best for Moon, uh, which was his debut directorial feature. And he's also directed Source Code, uh, Warcraft, and most recently the Netflix film Mute. And he's been kind of, um, I don't want to say on a downward trend since Moon, but Moon was definitely a really promising, really great breakout film. And since then, he's kind of struggled to make a a firm impact since then. So Mm -hmm. maybe uh, a TV series would be a really interesting and really good next step for him. Yeah, it sounds like a cool synopsis, and I, I know that um, you know he's he's definitely like one of those filmmakers who's very open on Twitter, and and um, you know seems like a genuinely good person. So I think uh, I, I'm always interested, and you know he's a he's a good director as well. So I, I'm very interested to see uh, this show and and what he does. Do we know what network this is going to be on yet, or is it still sort of in the too it's early? Still in develop- yeah, it's okay. still in development, so there's no network attached yet. Okay. Cool. Um, Brad, do you have any thoughts about Duncan Jones at all as a director? Yeah, it feels like he's kind of taken the same trajectory as Neil Blomkamp, where he had this amazing, you know, debut and has yet to capture anything as good as that yet. And while his movies have had some interesting ideas and some solid sequences and, you know, a very, um, you know, confident approach, they just they haven't really, I don't know, felt like... uh, you know, the same kind of filmmaker has been behind the the movies that uh, what he was when he was behind Moon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, so our next item, this one is kind of interesting. It's it's a company called New TV, which is that's a working title. That's a terrible name for a company. <laughs> it's one word, New TV. Uh, but apparently they're they're going to get a real name sometime in the next couple weeks. But Jeffrey Katzenberg is one of the co-founders of this company. And Katzenberg, for those of you who don't know, used to be the uh, chairman of Walt Disney Studios. He was the uh, co-founder of DreamWorks. If you've seen any DreamWorks movies, you might recognize DreamWorks SKG. Those uh, he is. The K in SKG there, and um, he has, has founded this company called New TV, and their aim is to 
basically change the way that audiences watch mobile content. And so basically they his company just raised $1 billion to do this. And they're looking to launch by the end of 2019 with a premium lineup of original short form series comprising episodes of 10 minutes each. The service will have two subscription tiers, like an advertising free plan and then an advertising light option like Hulu. And uh, apparently top talent uh, in Hollywood are interested in, um, you know, participating in this and, and putting together content for this new platform. So I just wanted to throw this out to you guys really quickly. Uh, a few years ago, Katzenberg was behind this crazy idea that he, he really wanted to create more episodes of Breaking Bad after the finale aired and distribute them in six minute chunks and have the audience pay for each chunk, sort of like a like an on-demand kind of thing. And that idea, he he threw that idea out as soon as he realized what the actual ending of Breaking Bad was, because he realized it, it wouldn't really make any sense for what he was going on, or, you know, what he had in mind there. But it seems like that underlying concept of people paying for small chunks of stories is, is something that stuck with him. And I'm, I'm wondering for you guys, do you think that this sounds like something that you would be interested in subscribing to? I mean, it, it would be yet another subscription service probably. And, but like 10 minute episodes with, you know, super high end talent is that, I mean, are you guys interested in short form storytelling like that? HG, what do you think? I think it's possible to do it uh, well, but I don't know if I would subscribe just based on a premise. I would have to find out who is actually the talent behind this and whether it's something that really um, encourages like creativity or something or something experimental. That would be really cool. But for now, it just sounds kind of like a weird cash grab more than uh, a creative opportunity. So I don't know. It, it would have to be reframed for me or at least just kind of like tell me who the directors are or right. whatever, like if this is a chance to like work on animation or something cool or weird, I don't know. It's I, as it is now, I, I, I don't really, it doesn't really appeal to me. What do you think, Brad? Does this have potential for you? Uh, not particularly. I mean, it's, I'm not against short form storytelling, but like HT said, it was really going to take a lot from, to convince me to take the time to watch just because it feels like if it's not worth, you know, watching on something like television or Netflix or, or Hulu or, you know, something like that, then it feels like it's just not really worth paying much attention to, you know? And maybe that's just because I'm old and, like, I'm the kind of person who, like, I don't necessarily have anything that, like, I watch loyally on things like YouTube and stuff like that. But, you know, so maybe this is something for, like, the next generation of viewers who have yeah. grown up watching Twitch streams and, you know, YouTube channels and all that stuff. Um, so I, yeah, it's not something that I'm necessarily on board with, but if they got the right people involved and they were making, you know, stuff that people started talking about, then I might be able to convince to, to give it a look. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think this is definitely geared toward a generation that's like right below us who absolutely grew up, you know, watching short form content on a regular basis like that. And I'm just wondering, like, I feel like there's a lot of potential here. I mean, it sounds like, as HT mentioned, it sort of sounds like a cash grab at this stage. But I feel like if they get the right people involved, they could, you know, they could easily make like, I'm just trying to think of any movie, like a, like Ocean's Nine or something could could conceivably play out over the course of, you know, X number of 10 minute episodes, you know, um, they could apparently with it, with a billion dollars in their first round of, of, uh, 
fundraising. That's a lot of money. And every I, I forgot to mention also that every single major Hollywood studio has backed this. They're, they're investors in this. So this is not just, you know, some guy's uh, wild harebrained idea. This is something that every studio and this Chinese tech company called Alibaba, which is worth over $500 billion, is investing in. And, and they are considering this to be like a, a serious option. So uh, I, I'm right there with you guys in that I would like more information, but I also, with all those big names attached and all the money that they have at their disposal and, and the access to the money that they have, I would not be remotely surprised to see them, you know, get some serious, huge people, A-list stars involved and tell a, a longer story just broken up over over little chunks like this. And I, I, I think that's what they're basically trying to do is reach out to younger audiences like that. But depending on the content, depending on the franchise and whatever they, you know, they start to uh, to get involved with, um, this has a lot of potential. So we'll see where it goes. We'll, we'll keep track, keep you guys apprised of that as, uh, as new TV or whatever it ultimately ends up being called uh, moves forward. So uh, one other news item that I wanted to mention was an American Gladiators reboot is on the way. Brad, tell us about that. Yeah, so American Gladiators is this classic uh, physical competition series that aired in the uh, late 80s and early to mid 90s. It was extremely popular to the point where the there were plenty of reruns that aired in syndication on Spike TV that people loved watching all the time as this you know vintage show simply because the physical competitions were were so cool and the show had this you know cheesy 80s retro flair to it. And the show was actually rebooted uh, in 2008 on NBC with a whole new lineup of gladiators and updated competitions. Uh, even Gina Carano uh, from the Fast and Furious franchise and Haywire got her showbiz star as one of the gladiators on that show named Crush. Um, and so now it's, they're going to try it again. MGM is apparently shopping around uh, an updated version of the show. And this time it has, uh, of all people... Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, the writers, directors, and producers of This is the End. Uh, they also wrote Superbad. And apparently they're going to executive produce this new series iteration. Um, that's pretty much all we know for now that it's, you know, pretty standard as, as far as what the show will be. You know, just a new version of American Gladiators, new Gladiator cast, new, uh, you know, challenges and that kind of thing. Um, but I do wonder if, like, there might be some kind of, you know, comedic, uh, edge thrown in there because it's it's Rogan and Goldberg, or if this is just them trying to expand their brand and you know continue to have you know solid gigs as producers so that they have some you know to fall back on you know if they their feature or television career ever starts to you know go a different direction then maybe mm -hmm. they have they have you know just all these projects that they have in their backlog for constant royalties you know that's kind of a cynical thing but you know this it is a show business you know so like and it seems like maybe it's this is, could be a a new trend because kevin hart has uh that new series on cbs total knockout that is another physical competition series that he hosts uh and and executive produces as well uh so maybe we're looking at you know comedians getting into these different reality competition shows hmm. um and, you know trying to add some flair to it but I love American Gladiators. I, I loved the new version when it came out in 2008. I, I, I recorded it and watched it whenever it was on. So I'll, I'll be interested to see what how this one turns out. Yeah, I'm very curious to see what they do, if anything, to really like change up the, the style of this. Because, I mean, it's such an inherently cheesy concept, but it is like undeniably watchable. Like, I don't really watch reality TV, but... I think I would probably tune into this just because I loved that stuff as a kid. Like the idea of like 
dive rolling across a floor and launching nerf guns at a target as people are trying to like take you out i mean it's just it's so fun um and maybe yeah i'm very curious like you've said brad to see if rogan and goldberg are going to insert themselves or their sensibilities into this in any way or if they're just also fans growing up and and wanted to sort of keep this thing alive so uh we'll keep you guys posted on that when we learn any more about it um our final news item for the day i just wanted to it's basically a psa from ht because i know she's a big harry potter fan and uh what's going on in the harry potter universe ht harry potter universe is coming back to theaters so all eight Harry Potter films, as well as the spin-off Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, are being shown at uh, Cinemark XD theaters across the country for uh, one week, dubbed Wizarding World XD Week, from August 31st to September 6th, 2018. So this is uh, a sort of big showcase in anticipation of the upcoming release of Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, which comes out this uh, November. And um, this is a really affordable, actually, little Wizarding World XD week because um, every film you can buy tickets for $5 per film, or if you want to splurge and see all the films, you can get a limited quantity festival pass for $25, which grants access to all nine movies, as well as a few collectibles, including a keychain, commemorative festival badge, and a refillable cup. So this is all a very cool thing and will probably fill the hole uh, in the hearts of everyone who miss um, ABC Family Harry Potter weekends, or rather freeform Harry Potter weekends. So now you can go back to theaters and binge watch Harry Potter films until your eyes bleed. Um, so Brad, I know you're also a big uh, fan of the Harry Potter franchise. Is a marathon like this something that you would be interested in doing, or are you more like, ah, I'm okay with just watching them at home? No, I'd actually be totally down to go see these in theaters again. It's, you know, um, it's been, what, 17 years now since the first one came out. And I think uh, 11 years, maybe. No, no, not 11 years, like like seven years since the last one came out, maybe. Something like that. Anyway, um, yeah, it's been a while since I've seen them in theaters. I, I, I love the Harry Potter movies. If anything, I would like to go and revisit some of the older ones in the big screen, like Prisoner of Azkaban and Goblet of Fire, which are two of my favorites from the franchise. But the only problem is, is that the, the the Cinemark locations that this is happening at, there's not one that's actually near me. So I'd have to really go out of my way to do it. And since they're playing, you know, over the span of a week, it's not really something that I can easily take advantage of, unfortunately. Well, if you drove 40 minutes to get a Jeff Goldblum Funko Pop, maybe you can uh, <laughs> go check this yeah, out. Yeah, but I'm not going to drive 40 minutes every day for a two-and-a-half-hour two movie. <laughs> what kind of fan are you, Brad? That's all I have to say. Um, okay, so uh, that's going to wrap up the news portion of the show. I want to lead really quickly into our feature presentation, which is I had a chance to speak with director Mark Forster on the phone, uh, I think it was last week, to ask him about Christopher Robin. He was the director of that movie, and HT and I both talked about that on Monday water cooler episode of the podcast so you can listen to that episode to get more of our thoughts about the film itself but in terms of this uh, this conversation with Forster, I asked him about stepping into the Disney machine. What was, what was that like? Um, if the Paddington franchise impacted this movie at all, uh, asked him to explain this random gladiator reference that he snuck into the movie and a little bit more. So here is my interview with Mark Forster. So what was it about this story that made you think, yes, I'm going to make this my next project? Uh, it's basically sort of it started. I was in a, on a flight with my daughter, and she was watching on her iPad a little uh, Pooh cartoon. And she was six years old at the time, and as she's watching, she suddenly turns to me and said, "Hey, can you make find a movie for kids or for me?" And I said to her, 
Uh, I said, uh, because she said, oh, yeah, all the other movies are uh, grown-ups and too dark and this and that. And I said, uh, okay, why, why don't we do Make Pooh? She turns, turns me, exactly, that's what we do, Pooh. And it was obviously more jokingly. And sort of the stars aligned, and uh, three years later, uh, we're here, uh, and uh, I, made, <laughs> I made this Pooh movie. And uh, sort of, you know, I was always a big fan of the Tower of Pooh, and uh, Pooh as a character. And because there's a, a Ultimately, you know, this incredible childlike humor with him. But then he has these quotes that Milne came up with, uh, which are, you know, ha- have this incredible depth, but also are very absurdly funny. Yeah, can you talk about that character specifically? Because Pooh is sort of a tricky character to get right. You really have to sort of walk a fine line with that character. Yes, no, I, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, it's, it's this fine line of... You know him just to embody embody his spirit, but we are trying to really follow, you know, sort of the the nostalgia and the and the feeling of how he was created and how he speaks. And obviously, then what I also wanted to do is uh, well, I did cast Jim Cummings as the voice of Pooh because he has done it so, for so long, and to give it a certain authenticity and someone who has inhabited the character for the last thirty years and. At the same time, even the the performance is different from the cartoon. He still, you know, yeah, once you hear his voice, it almost gives you like this, uh, you know, you suddenly feel like this cozy warm blanket over you and feel like you have arrived at home. Mm-hmm. The personality of the characters is probably something you couldn't change too much, but was there any temptation to reimagine the look of them at all? Uh, you know, I, my, my intention was at the beginning that I wanted to go back to the early Shepard drawings and then the early sort of black and white Disney drawings, what's Disney, both IP, and, and look at them both. And uh, ultimately, uh, I had my entire, you know, I wanted to be truthful, you know, as possible to the Shepard drawings. And I had my whole office filled with fabrics and and tried different fabrics in the light and I wanted to make sure that there, mm-hmm. there's certain wear and tear on them because uh, young Christopher Robin played with those animals and, and, and once he leaves, you want to feel that they're, they've been used and, and been hugged and loved. And sort of when ultimately uh, with the sweater, for instance, you know, Jenny Bevan, our costume designer, knitted that sweater by hand and then it was very hard to, you know, translate it into digital so, sort of uh, version of it. But it was always, uh, you know, I tried to be authentic but still give it uh, a new look. Cool. Uh, coming into this huge Disney machine, how many requirements are already in place for a movie like this? Like, are there elements that the studio insists on being included? Uh, no, I, I think, you know, I made a, you know, very early on uh, a presentation of how I saw the movie, what I wanted to do with the movie, and uh, and we were all very much aligned to make the same movie. And once I started prepping and designing the characters, they were very, they, they seemed to embrace the, the, the vision and the look, so I never had any issues with that. Gotcha. Uh, did I catch a gladiator reference in this movie with Pooh's hand in the wheat? Was the, did I see that right? Yeah, I, I, I did that purely out of, out of, out of, out of, out of a joke. And, and my DP first said to me, what are you doing? What? It's not original. I said, no, it's hilarious. Pooh <laughs> 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 as the gladiator touching the, touching the, the, the flowers. <laughs> 
Uh, was there a worry that the Paddington movies might have already cornered the cute and cuddly bear market? No, it's. Uh, I think you know Paddington is a bear. This is a this is a stuffed animal, a toy, and I think they're very different personality-wise. And I think also you know the pooism and and uh, how Pooh's behavior is very different uh, than Paddington. And I think the two of them have uh, I don't uh, not that much in common. Mm-hmm. So so uh, in regard to character personality and uh, so and obviously padding is much more active mm-hmm. um so so i wasn't worried about that and can you tell me about the color palette for this movie how did you arrive at the visual look of the film uh, there's a painter called uh, Lowry I really like who painted London uh, during that time, time period a lot which was a reference for me who basically in in, Lond- in the city of London there was you know during that time lots of fog and, and they used coal so it wasn't, wasn't as clean and uh, I tried to have not as like almost no green in the city um, obviously just a little park where they meet but which is sort of, sort of a rem- reminiscence of Hanalika Woods. But then, and then once he leaves the city, you're going out in the country where it becomes more sunny and he re-enters Hanalika Woods, which is again foggy until he comes out of the Heffalump pit, which from then on it's, uh, is the sun is shining again. Mm-hmm. Was there ever any consideration given to making the Hundred Acre Wood more of a, a magical kind of place? It sort of feels almost like it came straight out of the old book, but was there ever any conversations about like making it more visually stunning? Uh, no, 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 actually, uh, I never had that um, desire. I was, uh, because I always wanted to be uh, authentic to, to the original book. And it was always, you know, basically just uh, a, a lovely forest. It was never a magical place. It was never like, you know, uh, kind of an Alice in Wonderland situation. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about working with Hugh McGregor? What were the challenges for him acting opposite nothing for a good portion of this film? Uh, you know, he's, I must say, uh, every time we did this, you know, I, I had made the stuffed animal, we, I blocked the shots, had him there, and then when he was removed, uh, Ewan just acted to, to air, and it's, he just did an extraordinary job, because it's very hard to act to air and make, you know, believe that you're connecting with something, because normally you, you, know, you have an actor or some eyes or some object to connect with, but he just had to make that make-believe. And filming in that way does it require more takes than like a traditional scene of two human actors uh no to be be honest i mean you was so dialed in that he almost it was just like su- such a natural su- such a na- natural flow for him it was really extraordinary what was the most challenging aspect of this production for you uh you know the challenge aspect is i want to make that feel very like you know, dealing with the the stuff that is from beginning on, a lot of like handheld movements that you're really in there with them, and you feel really you believe them. And uh, and at the end end of it, it, that was very hard to achieve uh, because you usually you know you have like in panic, you have locked off shots or motion control. We didn't have that. We basically do a reference pass with the bear, take the bear out, and then do a, another reference pass uh, just with the hand at camera, which isn't the same pass because they're all different. And it's very hard for the animators to then insert the bear and, and uh, redo the shot uh, in post. So that's uh, pretty challenging to do. 
Was there anything that you were able to slip into the movie that you're particularly proud of? Something that maybe uh, allowed you to put your personal stamp on the film? Um, I, you know, I, I think that there, 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 there are lots of those, but uh, for, in, in regard to how I shot it and, and did certain things. But the, the main thing for me, what I'm very you know excited and proud of, is that I got three Richard Sherman songs out of Richard Sherman. That he, you know, he was. I thought when I'm getting one, I would be blessed. But he ultimately, uh, when I spoke to him, and he suddenly was inspired and, and wrote, wrote three songs for the movie. And that's, I'm, I'm really uh, excited and proud of that we got these magical songs from him. Excellent. Uh, I think I probably have time for about one more question with you. So I want to throw it to you for a second. I, I know you're about to embark on this big press tour and part of what comes with that is getting asked the same questions over and over again. I'm just wondering, are, are there any stories from the set or the making of the movie that that you don't think you're going to be asked about, but that you want to bring to light, whether it's like uh, a memory or, you know, some little thing that happened that is um, that is sort of uh, more obscure or like off the beaten path? Um, yeah, I, I mean, the, it's you know, we we shot down you know in Ashdown Forest, right? At uh, almost the where we built our pool bridges, almost at the same same river, uh, which was connected to the AM, AM Illness Estate, and you know when we were shooting there and out in the forest, it was almost in England. The weather can be very tricky, and uh, every time like where the log is. The location I found the log where the lonely tree is there. Uh, every time I was at that location, the weather was just perfect, exactly what I needed. The clouds were there, or the sunset was there, and that usually doesn't happen. It was pure, pure magic, and and we shot part of that there in sixty-five millimeter. These all these wide shots, and it was all when you made enough movies, you know that this never happens, and you almost felt like, oh, we're here on this land, and uh, sort of, uh, it's almost a sort of the creation of poo is shining up on us, that, that everything goes just perfectly well, fine, exactly the way I envision it, and you have no control over it. Awesome. All right, Mark, well, thanks very much for speaking with me. I appreciate your time. Okay, thanks, man. Take care. All right, I hope you guys enjoyed that, and uh, right before we go, where can people find more of our work online? HT, let's start with you. You can find me writing every day at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at HTranBooey. Brad? You can find me at SlashFilm.com, of course, also on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton, and on the old podcasting site iTunes with my podcast, Go Flix Yourself. You can find me writing at SlashFilm.com as well. You can find me on Twitter at Ben Pears, and you can find more about all the stories we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked in the show notes of this episode. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find at SlashFilm.com. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com, and make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast. That really helps us out a lot. Tell your friends, spread the word about the show any way you can. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow.